Hey, fellow chasers, just a reminder before we get into this episode to please rate and review the show. Check out thechasepodcast.ca for more content. And most importantly, if you like what you hear, please share it with someone else who could use a little help. Here we go. generally considered bad luck to wish someone good luck in a theater. Quite paradoxical, I know. And so the term break a leg has come to replace good luck as a well wish for performers. Why would you wish someone fracture their fibia? One theory is this. There is a demarcation on the stage known as the leg, or the leg line. Beyond this point, a person is visible to the audience and is on the stage. In a time when hopeful performers would queue up for an opportunity to do their thing, they would only actually get paid if they made it on the stage. So to have your chance to perform in front of an audience and get paid for doing so, you had to break the leg line. So if performance is in your destiny, you're going to have to figure out how to break a leg. You're listening to The Chase. I grew up on the res. I grew up on Six Nations, so an hour and a half outside of Toronto, um, not far from the city, which is great in a lot of ways. Um, but we grew up without, you know, I guess what you would, what it looks like now today being a kid, you know, internet, uh, a million channels, YouTube streaming, cell phones. Um, you know, we had, we didn't have running water. <laughs> like, it was very rustic. It was very, uh, very res. And so we, me and my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, we just had each other to hang out with. And we had to make our own worlds and our own play and be creative um, and always be outside. And so that taught us, I think, how to use our imagination. That's the voice of Phelan Johnson. Chatting over coffee at the Skyline Restaurant, an old school diner on the border of Parkdale and Little Tibet in Toronto. The neon sign out front is original to the restaurant, as is the veneered counter we're perched at. We arrived at the tail end of the lunch rush, which means we caught the changing of the guard as one by one the press shirts and pencil skirts return to their offices and are replaced by the more eclectic mix of individuals that live in this area. God, I love Toronto. In some ways, Phelan has come a long way from those days on the res without running water, in other ways, she stayed rather close. You see, Phelan writes what she knows, and so much of her work reflects her indigenous heritage, as well as the cultural and identity struggles that have stemmed from it. But her unique and personal writing voice has earned her some attention. A chance encounter at a writer's conference opened up an opportunity for Phelan to have one of her plays included in an issue of Granta magazine. If you aren't familiar with it, Granta is a literary magazine that was founded in Cambridge in 1889. It has published the works of A. A. Milne and Sylvia Plath, so it's kind of a big deal. Having her work published in that issue, just a few pages after a piece by Margaret Atwood, by the way, launches Phelan on an international journey that eventually brings her and her writing 
to Paris. I went to Paris and did a talk in uh, a bookstore called Shakespeare & Co. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's amazing. It's this amazing bookstore. It looks, it's like straight out of Harry Potter. It's like right across the road from, uh, from Notre Dame. Um, and so all the floors were like kind of sideways. Like it's so old, it's so old. And they have the bookstore on the main floor and then upstairs is an apartment that they let writers stay in for free. It's like kind of a residency thing. You have to like kind of apply for it, but the application process is like really loose. So you like apply and you have to write a like autobiography and put it in one of these binders. So they have these shelves and shelves of binders, but like nice Nin, um, Sylvia Plath, um, like you name it, David Sedaris, uh, David Rakoff, who I love. Uh, and the, the one that like killed me was Samuel Beckett. <laughs> Like, so they took us up to this apartment because they had this wine and cheese reception before we did the panel. And I was just like, they're like, yeah, Samuel Beckett. And I just like was like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I love, I've loved his work forever. And one of the, like, it was an inspiration for the piece that I had written for this thing, Two Indians. I put two people in a space while they waited for something. And... And so I was like, I have to use the bathroom just because I wanted to pee where Samuel Beckett had peed. <laughs> so she goes from no running water to peeing in the same washroom as Samuel Beckett. That's pretty awesome. But her journey takes her well beyond simple plumbing related accomplishments, beyond writing plays as well. Phelan's interest in history and the unique and untold stories from within it lead her to write and co-host a podcast series. And that series gets off to quite an auspicious start. And all of a sudden we're like getting texts from people. We were all texting each other like, hey, we're, we're like jumping up. We're like at like, we're like 98. We're like, hey, we're like 52. Hey, we're like 20. Hey, we're at two. <laughs> and so we charted at two and we were like over a couple of days and we were just like, when we surpassed this American life in Oprah, we were like, <laughs> the impoverished young girl on the res may not have ever dreamed that her writing would take her around the globe, grace numerous stages, or dethrone Oprah. But clearly, she had something to say. Turns out, the world wanted to listen. first play I ever did in high school uh, was uh, Streetcar Named Desire. It was Blanche Dubois. There were three Blanche Dubois. Everything was double cast. Blanche was triple cast. Um, and I remember coming off the stage one night because I had I had two performances and uh, I got opening and closing which I thought was really great. And um, I just remember coming off the stage and being like I want to do this. I want to do this. Like this is this is great. I want to feel like this. Phelan finds her passion early in life. There's a certainty to her chase. Though that certainty doesn't mean that her journey was a straight line. She takes some acting classes and then heads off to a theater program at George Brown College. But actual work in the theater industry, well, that proves elusive. I graduated and I got out of school and I was like, okay, well, I've been, I've been working really hard for three years and I've been told for that three years that I won't work 
that was that's one of the things that they told us was that we it's really hard to work you probably won't ever work and I was like well this sucks and so I started to write my memoirs because I'm at the age of 21 I remember feeling like well, I need a creative outlet I ha I've been doing this really creative work for three years for six days a week 12 hours a day plus homework so there it was so much of my life I had this creative outlet like a number of creative outlets and I was surrounded by creative people and so when that was taken away from me I was like okay well now I have a job in a bar and now I you know I have a bunch of jobs and what the hell am I gonna do so I just started to write my memoirs which was hilarious because I what what did I have to say I think that's pretty key when opportunities didn't automatically present themselves for failing to work in her field and continue to hone her creative skills, well, she created one. After all, a writer writes. Like, I'm glad that I did it because from that, those early writings, that's what turned into my first play that I wrote, um, Soul Baby, which has been going. I was just going to ask. Still so going. It did have a lot to say. It did have a lot to say, yeah. I mean, it was refined, baby. obviously, over years. But yeah, it, uh, it went went kept going i mean no one's doing it this year but i just like actually got a royalty check for 300 dollars, which is like pretty good in terms of like you know because i've never made money off of it since it's been published like the published version but it's like i'm like wow there's money that's amazing <laughs> so that work pays off and not just with those three robbie bordens but bringing a play to life turns out that's quite an evolutionary process. I started writing that, then I started working with Native Earth Performing Arts, which is the oldest indigenous theater company in the country. Um, and uh, the artistic there, the artistic director there, Yvette Nolan, um, she was like, I think you should maybe apply to, to our Young Voices program, which is like their Young Writers program. And I was like, okay, well, I have this thing, and I showed it to her. And so they paired me with uh, Judith Thompson, who's like, giant in Canadian theater right like she's I studied her in school she's and so I was like all of a sudden in a room with Judith Thompson which was like holy fuck this is crazy um she was great she was lovely I feel like we didn't really get as much work done as I wanted to on it but over the years I eventually I was like a vet I really want you to work on this with me and so we started working on it and and then it was just like this little thing that just kept going I mean I self-produced it in Toronto at Next Stage Festival well, first there was a workshop production, then it was produced at Next Stage, then, you know, it was done in Vancouver at a festival, and then a bunch of presenters saw it, and then we decided to tour it to the Yukon, so Yvette and I took it to the Yukon. And it just keeps going. And now Phelan is a playwright, which is a pretty awesome title, isn't it? It's so Shakespearean. Oh, an interviewing note, when choosing a location to record an interview perhaps skip sitting next to an espresso machine. Apologies for the background noise. Okay, little factoid about me. I have a love for an inside baseball look at almost anything, but especially the creative process. And Phelan is the first playwright I've ever met. I couldn't help but ask her for a look behind the curtain of how a play gets workshopped into existence. It's, it's fun. <laughs> it's really fun. It's like, that's sort of the getting in the room is the reward for the work that you do by yourself because um, when you get to be in a room with actors and people who are bringing this thing to life and also taking it from you they take it and they and they just it becomes something different the way that you hear it in your head isn't the way that someone else reads it 
And so then all of these possibilities open up. So, you know, you the way that it normally would work is you'll get to a point with the draft, you'll have a workshop, uh, you'll read it a couple of times, people ask questions, you usually have a dramaturge in the room who leads that discussion. Okay, that just fuels my romanticized view of the whole artistic process. But hey, the world is a little better when it contains a healthy dose of romance, isn't it? But that brings us to the hard part of any artistic or creative pursuit. You see, eventually, you have to put your work out there in a place where others can see it and experience it, where they can comment and respond to it, where they can judge. Ah, Valen's advice on that front, well, it's relatively simple. Like you have to be brave. Because the things that people usually hook into or um, see themselves in or can, f- can relate to are those moments of vulnerability um, and you have to be brave to be vulnerable, right? And you, and usually someone else is thinking it, you know, like there's a, a commonality and experience and you just have to say these things. And I mean, I think I'm an oversharer by nature, so that helps. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, there have been very few things that I've never, that I've not wanted to show or not been willing to show. As the rub. The work we respond to are the ones that are personal, where they're vulnerable. And so are you willing to be vulnerable? Am I? If that thought has you feeling a little exposed, Phelan offers up a wonderful hyphenated word that can act as a convenient shield if you need it. The beautiful thing about being a writer is you can say, well, this isn't my experience. This is, you know, this is semi-autobiographical is what I always say about Salt Baby. But I mean, there's always yourself in your work, right? You're always going to be present in your work in some way. And I think playwriting is is a really good place to, like, to be able to tread that line of weaving your own experience. Because you can, sometimes a, a fully autobiographical thing is going to be a terrible theater. Because the arc of it or the drive of it the story of it isn't going to work because it's not done live live in a two-act structure (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and so you have to you have to change that it can't just be fully autobiographical and so i've done that a lot you change things to help drive the story and you know i always think if you're afraid of it if you're afraid of saying yes to something, then you should probably do it. Um, like, run towards it. And you do have to run towards it. And it's going to be scary. And it's not... It might not always turn out well, but at least you'll have tried it. So Leah Simone Bowen and I, we actually, we met at Native Earth, Performing Earth, again. Native Earth is, you know, it is like a base for a lot of Indigenous people in the city. And so Leah was working there. She's not Indigenous, but she was working there uh, in an outreach capacity. And so she's a playwright. We were friends. You know, we'd meet for coffee every now and again and talk. And we we shared an interest in history, like historical writing. Like we look, you know, my work on Longlands or, you know, I kept updating her about that. She wrote a play called The Flood, which is all about uh, the women's prison under St. Lawrence Market. 
um, and so we talk about these these things, right? There was a, there was a commonality in what we were interested in, and so we'd we'd meet, we'd just have coffee and talk, and then she was like, "No, we should start a podcast." And I was like, "Okay, I love podcasts. Like I've always loved podcasts. I've always loved radio. Um, it's been a big part of my life forever." Uh, and I was like, "Yeah." Like once I discovered this American Life, I was like, "What is this amazing thing?" this is so good and I became obsessed um and so I was like yeah let's do it because again it's like I don't know how to do this but I'm just gonna say yes because it's just say yes and so I saw a workshop uh, an advertisement for a workshop uh for like a pay what you can podcast workshop with Katie Jensen who uh did Canada Land and was you know worked with them a lot and was a name she's worked on a ton of podcasts so we were like yeah let's go to this so we went and katie just you know did a a really quick workshop and like really kind of like threw us into the fire immediately so there was like a group of like maybe like i don't know 10 women 12 women there and because it was specifically for women and so she made us record a trailer for a podcast like our theoretical podcast put music underneath and we had to play it for everyone and lee and i are not technologically uh smart <laughs> so so we couldn't get the music to come down underneath our underneath like our text or audio text it was fine and because the idea was there we had already sort of like talked enough about it that we sketched out like 12 episodes and we knew what the name was going to be we're like this is secret life of canada we want to do this and uh we played it and after the workshop katie was like i think you guys have a really good idea and i'd like to work on this if you don't have anyone and we're like yes please because we don't know what we're doing yeah so again the bar we're sitting at well turns out that's also where they keep the cutlery that's them putting it away clearly i could have attended a podcasting workshop myself before embarking on this project but how wonderfully simple is this concept they had this idea to create something They had no idea how to do it, so they went to a workshop. And in doing so, they exposed themselves to not only some expertise to help them, but also introduced themselves to a new network of people, one of which is about to launch them on the first leg of a new adventure. We took a meeting with um, St. Joseph's Media. Uh, They had gotten money to do, from Canada 150, to do a bunch of stuff. And so, they were going to give her, they were like, Katie, we, ha- we want you to work on something for us with archival tape. And she was like, I've got a better idea. I met these two women and they want to do this. If you give us this much money, we can give you three episodes. And they were like, okay, sure, fine. Um, and so they didn't think much of it. We didn't think much of it. We were like, okay, let's do this. So we, we did the first episode, which was on Banff. We did the second episode, which was on Ipperwash. And then we did the third episode, which was on Birchtown, Nova Scotia. And so... And then we did three shout-outs, which are shorter episodes. We knew we wanted to do those because we wanted to keep the feed alive. So we put out the first episode. Uh, we did not expect anything to happen at all. We were like, okay, fun, because Katie prepared us that, like, listen, you know, if you get, like, a thousand listens, that's amazing for a podcast. We're like, okay. They had tempered expectations of what success could look like. But as you heard earlier, they blew through those expectations right out of the gate. Numbers are great, but the success was about to become very tangible. I think, you know, it was after that episode, I was sitting in a, I was sitting in a bar near our house, just up on Dundas, and I was sitting there by myself working on probably the next script, freaking out about that. And I heard someone say, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's called The Secret Life of Canada. I don't know if it's going to be any good. First episode was on Vamp, but it was good. And I was like, holy shit, they're talking about me. <laughs> and I just like was like, oh my god, this is so weird. How cool is that? But success shifts some of the conversations behind the scenes. Because now this little podcast idea, it's a thing. And that thing could mean money at some point. Which brings us to some very practical and very important advice. After the three episodes, St. Joseph's Media was like, oh my god, this is a thing. Yeah. This is a big thing all of a sudden. Um, so they, were they happy to produce kind of a well, the want Then or? they wanted more insight and input into it. And so they, we started talking to them about, you know, a bunch of things. One of them being intellectual property. Um, and Leah is really great at contracts. And so she was like, we need a lawyer. <laughs> is the first time I've ever had to have a lawyer for my work. Um, she was like, we just need someone to look at this contract. We have to own the idea because we had also been approached by uh, Cook McDermott, which is a literary agency in the city, and they, they want us to write a book. And so that means we have to own the idea. We can't not own the idea. And so, he, so we went back and forth for them a while, and it was sort of a deal breaker for them not to own it, which is not uncommon. It's not an uncommon thing for a lot of podcasts. Or a lot of content, right? People want to own it. But for us, we were like, well, we can't. So we just moved away and we started doing it independently, which was, I mean, the majority of season of season one, we financed it ourselves. Like, we worked for free. Owning the idea was important to Phelan and Leah. They had bigger ideas on what they could potentially do with this intellectual property down the road. But insisting on maintaining the ownership of that IP meant passing on some offers and some money at the beginning. And that's a hard thing to pass up. Working for free isn't fun, but that perseverance pays off. Eventually, the CBC comes a-knocking, and Phelan and Leah are able to strike a deal that better suits them. With the CBC's resources, they're better able to produce the show, and the idea of turning it into a book, well, that's still alive and well. We've done a proposal, we need to go back and edit it, and then resubmit it, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, we're really hoping it. <laughs> like, we, we really just want to write a book, so we can be like, we wrote a big old book. There's a lesson in there about trusting in your idea, and investing in yourself if you think you've got something. And Phelan, she's got something. At the end of the day, Phelan is a storyteller. The podcast allows her to expand the story she's able to tell explore a whole new medium, and practice her chops on a regular basis. It's also given her a little notoriety and expanded her network, which is going to help her no matter where she takes her storytelling abilities. Will it be back to the stage, on the radio waves, or onto the pages of a book? To be honest, I kind of think it's going to be all three. Phelan isn't quite Oprah, not yet anyway, but she's enjoying a fair bit of a success, and she's getting her work out there in many forms. She's broken the leg line, which is what she's wanted to do since gracing the stage as one of three Blanche Dubois. That success isn't lost on her either. Me and my sister sometimes say to each other, like, look where we, like, look, look at what we've done. You know, like, we grew up pretty poor for the for a good chunk of our lives. We didn't have running water. <laughs> but we both, you know, feel like we've made it to a place. But all of it is, you know, 
hard work. <laughs> hard work saying yes and, and sticking to what you know you want to do. You really have, and, you, and running at it, running right at it.